Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 through 28, the story of a young King Solomon asking for wisdom and getting it. He displays his wisdom in a story so famous that Seinfeld based an episode on it, the story of the baby who is claimed by two mothers. But it's not just a puzzle to solve. This story arises out of genuine tragedy, and the stakes could not be higher. What kind of wisdom exactly does Solomon display? Is it focused on discerning what happened in the past? Or is it a future-looking wisdom, trying to put things on the best available course? Which mother do you, as a reader, imagine is telling the truth? And what from your own life experience makes you think so? And finally, let's raise up the woman who stepped in to save the child's life, even if it meant being separated from her own infant. She is the real hero. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy. I Here's how I'm doing. I am drinking the strongest cup of coffee that has maybe ever. Do you ever do that? Are you a coffee drinker? You're a coffee drinker. I am a coffee drinker, but it's very regimented. I have mm. two cups of coffee between 5.15 and 5.45 Oh, dear goodness. And then that's it. No that's more That's amazing. I did that thing today where, do you ever do this thing where instead of measuring the coffee, you just go and like dump the stuff, like the the grounds into the thing and you don't like and know. And just like eyeball it. And yeah. And I over eyeballed it. And so it's like the strongest cup of that, coffee. But that makes a good story. Yeah. So I'm both. <laughs> so the, how am I doing is I'm a little tired today and thusly the coffee. And also I'm a little jittery because I dumped the thing without measuring. And so I am. Tired and, <laughs> tired and jittery. Happy Bible worm. Amazing. How, uh, how are you today? Um, I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, we are, you know, sort of in the midst of just coming out of this incredibly intense holiday season yeah. in the Jewish world. So I like don't really know what day it is or which way is up. Last night I left synagogue so late. I like literally couldn't walk straight. I was like walking into walls. Like I couldn't walk straight <laughs> down the hallway. I was like, I don't know if I should drive. Like, oh I don't my gosh. know what. I'm so tired. Yeah. So welcome to Bible Worm. And, so welcome uh, to Bible Worm. One of us is highly caffeinated and one of us is really tired. Yeah, it's going to um, be amazing. It's the perfect way to read the Bible. I love that story is. that you tell every once in a while about, I think it's related to Shavuot, but like how people stay up all night reading the Bible and they start seeing things and having visions. They start losing and, their minds. Yeah. Yes. That's mm-hmm. gonna, That's this is going to be the Bible Worm version of, uh, of that, which you might not actually be able to distinguish from a normal Bible Worm now, <laughs> now that I'm saying it out loud. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll receive some mystical wisdom. We have a text about wisdom. We do. We do. The most, pro- I think the most famous text about wisdom. Uh, I think so too. You know, there's even a Seinfeld episode that was based on this text where, I don't know, it was, 
somebody had a bike. Was it Kramer had a bike and Newman was like, well, cut the bike in half. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I have to go back and look, look that one up, but there's definitely like, this is so well known that Seinfeld riffed on it. So I I feel like that's true fame. That's true true fame. fame. We are reading first Kings chapter three, starting in verse four and then going to the end of the chapter. And is the story of King Solomon asking for wisdom. Then there's an issue with a baby, maybe cutting the baby in half. They do not, spoiler alert, they do not actually cut the baby in half. Oh man, this would be such a different story. That'd be a really different story. story Mm -hmm. Last we spoke, we were talking about King Solomon's father. Yes. David. Things have happened since then. What, what, What do we need to know before we can start? I mean, I was just thinking, it's so interesting. Like, we, I mean, we've moved kind of a ways, but we're still just in the next generation. I was just thinking about how the biblical story really, the pace of it slows way down yes. with David and Solomon. And so you've got basically First and Second Samuel and the first 11 chapters of First Kings are related just to those two generations of this one family. Yeah. So the text really wants to linger over these figures. We were talking last time about how the incident with Uriah and Bathsheba really does result, or one can read it as resulting in sort of the demise of David's life in a sense. Nathan says, the sword's going to be in your house. And for the rest of 2 Samuel after chapter 11, that's a little bit what happens. Solomon here, who is Bathsheba's son, but not the son from the incident that we read yeah. about last week. That that child has that died. That child has died. He's actually fourth in line uh, to be the king. And so between 2 Samuel 11 and 1 Kings 2, you've got to get rid of three of David's sons <laughs> one way or another mm. so that Solomon can be the king. And so uh, David's son Amnon rapes his sister Tamar and then is killed by his brother Absalom. Then Absalom rebels against David and dies in battle. Adonijah, poor guy, thinks he's the legitimate king, so he be, he coronates himself, basically, and it turns out that people have been working behind the scenes to make Solomon the legitimate king, and so he gets killed, and it's been kind of a bloodbath in the second yeah. half of Second Samuel, but now Solomon has become the king, and the text lingers over Solomon. Uh, as we'll see, Solomon is remembered as the wisest of the kings. This text is going to be core, uh, key to that understanding. Mm -hmm. So this text occurs just after. Solomon has just become the king in the previous chapter, sort of secured his kingship. And now this is sort of the story of the beginning of his reign once it has been solidified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. And I love how you pointed out, especially that, that, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, we 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 have the experience of reading the biblical text, and because we there's so much material on these two generations, it's you know I remember uh, one of our professors in graduate school, David Peterson, pointing out to me that like the United Kingdom was not actually that long. <laughs> no, that's right. You know, and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's that's right. It was not actually that long, but you. The experience of reading the text as it unfolds makes you think it is proportionally yeah. much longer. Because it's united until, what is it, First Kings 12. And so it lasts mm-hmm. for all of First and Second Samuel and half of First Kings, but it's really only yeah. 
like 80 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So today we're going to read this uh, most famous story of King Solomon the Wise. I am reading from the NJPS. It is 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Ready? Let's do it. Okay. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the largest shrine. On that altar, Solomon presented a thousand burnt offerings. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I grant you? Solomon said, You dealt most graciously with your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in integrity of heart. You have continued this great kindness to him by giving him a son to occupy his throne, as is now the case. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am a young lad with no experience in leadership. Your servant finds himself in the midst of the people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Grant then, your servant, an understanding mind to judge your people, to distinguish between good and bad, for who can judge this vast people of yours? He sounds so humble. He does. Yeah, it's really, it's really lovely. I don't usually, I don't usually think of Solomon as humble. <laughs> no, I think that, I think that's fair. For sure. And by the end of his life, like humility is not how one would describe him. But here he does, he strikes all the right notes, at least yeah. in this, yeah. in this passage. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with sort of the biggest question that's, yeah. that's on my mind that is maybe a strange one, but how maybe, or maybe a naive one. But I mean, this seems like the request that most of us would make in this position. <laughs> no? Or am I like I just feel like like it's it's presented as this as such a I don't know, model of hmm. uh, humanity and humility and and whatnot, but for me this seems like the obvious thing to ask for. Is that is that dumb, Bobby? <laughs> no, that's not dumb. I mean, I appreciate that because I mean, I think I get easily sucked into that like, wow, Solomon, he has so has his head on straight. And so to say like, yeah, but I mean, isn't this just what you should say? Like, isn't it sort of obvious? Is really a helpful reorientation. I mean, the way that I, one way of thinking about it to me is we just had a text in which we saw David at the height of his power. And, mm. you know, we talked about in that text that uh, it's the time to go out to war and David stays home and like sits on the couch and looks to yes. see what trouble he can get into. Yes, he does. And so we're coming from a, place where it seemed like David had reached the point that he was enjoying the trappings of power. He was Mm. enjoying the luxury and the leisure of being the king. And so at the very least, I think we could say Solomon seems to be like moving back from that. Yes. Which is, I mean, you know, I don't know what it's like to inherit a kingdom (laughs) from my Mm, father. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I did not inherit a kingdom. But I, you know, there the history is full of uh, of boy kings who just are like being a king is awesome, and so they seem like they pursue the the wealth and power and money and whatever, and they're not actually that interested. I'm thinking of somebody like you know the the Roman emperors Caligula or Nero or yeah, people yeah, like yeah. that. That's really helpful. To so me it's about nice it. to have helpful. a king, maybe like you and me, who are not born into royalty. <laughs> this seems like the yeah. obvious thing. But for someone who was sort of born into it, maybe this is sort of saying like, no, he's still got, he's still got his head on straight. 
Mm-hmm. But not in a way, I, I appreciate what you're saying. It's not in a way that is particularly profound, but it is at least in a way that means he's not totally been seduced by the trappings yeah. of royal culture or something. Yeah. No, I love that. And I love, I think maybe related to that, his pointing out like, I am but a young lad. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like I just haven't seen, I haven't, I haven't lived. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, you know, and even if someone has lived a full life, as he says, like, we're talking about judging many, many different kinds of lives here. And yeah. Yeah. It yeah, is no, also I've, possible to read Solomon as calculating here. And I don't know, like, that he doesn't mean any of this. He's just like, he yuck. knows, like, you know, this is what you say when God shows up to you. Like, if you know that and I know that, maybe mm-hmm. Solomon knew it. And so he just said what you say. That is the way some yeah. people read this text, but your face is sad. That <laughs> makes me so sad. Yeah. But yes, you're right. You certainly could read this text that way. It's kind of. I have enough really coffee is. in me today that I'm feeling optimistic, and so I want to read him as sincere. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, we'll give him. We'll try to give him the benefit of the doubt. Do it. Uh, okay, maybe this is a tangent, but you know, you raised the the issue that in the last story we read, David's behavior. He was he was starting to go more towards the I've got power side, you know, yeah. instead of the I am a servant of the people side or a servant of the Lord. I almost want to ask, like, this is, I, mean, I guess it's an imagination question. Do you think Solomon was aware? Like, do, I don't know. Like, do you think Solomon was, mm. I don't know. Maybe we, should, I don't, maybe we should just scratch that question. It's impossible to answer that question. I mean, I don't know that one probably should not build a whole interpretation of the passage on it, but it is interesting to think about, like, Solomon's mother is Bathsheba. And so he knows surely something of that story. And he's seen what's happened in his family. Like that he got to be king out of it, but surely there's some trauma, like watching your siblings like rape and murder each other. And so, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about the possibility that he really is trying to do something different than what his father David did at the end of his life. Because his portrayal of his father as, you know, faithful and that's righteous true. and integrity of heart. That's true. I don't know. Maybe that's the father that he came to know after after yeah. this terrible thing had already happened. Like yeah. maybe this is some indication that David did come back to the right path after that. I think you could read it that way. Or I think you could also read like this is the way that David is remembered. And that's the way we yeah. still remember David today. Yes. And so, you know, I mean, I think there's possible... It is possible also to say the true David was the pre Second Samuel eleven David was the pre so up until that mm-hmm. moment and that's what Solomon wants to hold on to and then he then he lost it at the end but I want to remember him the way yeah he was in his yeah. prime I think you could also read it that way yeah and it's so interesting to me to think about David in his prime and then this like Solomon at the beginning yeah, yeah you yeah. know and how I don't know there's there's something about that beginning part. Yeah. It's especially interesting to read it that way when if you have, I mean, if you're a Bible reader, you know how the Solomon story ends too, which is he ends up with a thousand wives and concubines and he's worshiping foreign gods at Mm -hmm. high places and marrying foreign women. And the biblical text ends up critiquing him for that. And then he's going to, he doesn't lose the kingdom, but God punishes him as you were acknowledging before by splitting the kingdom in the generation of his son Rehoboam. So we know, like we, we just saw David at the end of his life when he sort of lost his way. Here we have Solomon at the beginning of his life when everything is hopeful, and yet you kind of know it's going to end up there again. 
And so it's sort of interesting to think about this as like a moment in between sort of two kings losing their their way. Yeah. You know, I know I started this conversation by saying this is the obvious thing to ask for. But I I want to like, I don't know, I want to nuance. Oh, now I want to sort of go back and nuance that a little bit because I think it's obvious to ask for help. Yeah. But the specific thing he asks for is, does he actually use the word wisdom? An understanding mind to judge your people, mm-hmm. to distinguish between good and bad. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't ask for, he's, he doesn't ask to be a vessel of, of sort of ongoing divine sensibility or whatnot. Like he asks for, he asks to be equipped mm-hmm. with a discerning mind. Right. I, th- I don't know. Can you unpack that a little bit? I feel or, or, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I feel like you are about to unpack it. Like <laughs> you're right on the like, edge. I want to unpack it. And I want to know where your head's going because I think that's something interesting happening. I mean, where my head's going is, you know, in our, in the weekly Torah readings in the Jewish world, I've been in Deuteronomy and it is, uh, if we imagine, and I don't know how much we want to go into this, but that the, the Deuter- Deuteronomist that there's some relationship between the hand, the sort of mindset at work in the book of Deuteronomy and the mindset at work in these texts that we're reading. The way that Deuteronomy thinks about what the society really needs in order to function once they enter the land of Israel is very much oriented towards a a justice system. Mm -hmm. And it's very much oriented towards the idea that the kinds of judges you want are not just faithful people, although faithfulness is good for Mm -hmm. sure. There's something about this like discerning mind. Mm -hmm. Like there's this new element that you don't see that I didn't see so much in earlier texts in the Torah that I really see that come to life in in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure what else to say about it exactly. I mean, I feel like you have more experience thinking about biblical wisdom than I do, but I don't know if that feels like a tangent to you here. I mean, I think that what you're pointing to, I think is important. And it's true in the biblical tradition in general, I think, is that we often think of wisdom as a little bit esoteric or ephemeral. Like you just, like there's a like an owl that wears glasses or whatever, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but there is very much an element of wisdom in the biblical tradition that is deeply practical. And so all of this like thoughtfulness you have is about how do you live in community and you want leaders who have that ability to apply their wisdom in specific situations to ensure justice for the community. I think that's a really nice insight. And that does seem to be what Solomon's asking for specifically to understand, to discern between good and evil uh, for the purpose of judging the people. Like, yeah. Ins- and I read that as ensuring justice for the people. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not just being judgy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of shoes are you wearing today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the And I do think that's important that Solomon does not seem to be just asking, like, I want to be a wise person, right? And so everyone will think mm-hmm. of me wise. But, like, I want to be able to do justice. I think that's really, I think that's really important. Yeah, and as we go a little further, I'll be interested to see how that, what do we think that actually means? Yeah. What do we, how does that actually play out? But we're not there yet. We are not. Anything else you want to add on this first little section, or should we 
see it how it is possible that you are intentionally avoiding this issue. <laughs> oh, let's see. But the uh, the narrative lectionary begins us with Solomon going to Gibeon to make sacrifices at a high place, mm. and you invoked the Deuter- Deuteronomist. And the worst thing you can do in the book of Deuteronomy is to go make a sacrifice at a high place. It seems that Solomon is making sacrifices at least to the right God, but he's mm-hmm. doing it in the wrong place. And you know, we there is not yet a temple in Jerusalem because Solomon is going to build it uh, just in a few chapters. But the ark is in Jerusalem because David brought it there. And so I go back and forth between whether Solomon is doing just kind of, here's the thing that you did before there was a temple, or whether Solomon is offering some kind of unapproved sacrifice in an unapproved place. Although God shows up and just treats it like normal. God so, seem, but God seems happy about the sacrifice. Yeah. I also notice in the part that the narrative lectionary leaves out that Solomon is already married to the, the a foreign woman. He's married to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh's daughter, which has all kinds of baggage when we've just read the Exodus story and we've read about foreign alliances and we've read about foreign women. I don't know what to do with all of that. It's just like there's a little mm-hmm. hint Mm-hmm. at the beginning of this text that Solomon is doing some things that are going to turn out to be like, these are exactly the things that are the problem with Solomon in first Kings 11 at the end of his life as he's worshiping there, he's worshiping uh, other gods in high places and he's marrying foreign women. I don't know. Like there's just a little, there's a hint of ambiguity at the beginning of the Solomon story. That's going to blow up at the end of the Solomon story. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, I, you know, I didn't mention the sacrifice thing because my, because there wasn't a, I, it's not clear to me that this would have been a problem before yeah. there was a temple. Yeah. But it is weird that Deuteronomy is so obsessed with the centralization of sacrifice. And then yeah. this text starts with very much not that. Yeah. And I mean, there's a question here about, you know, who wrote this text and when was mm-hmm. it written? And is, does it come from the time of Solomon? In which case, maybe it's not weird. Or does mm-hmm. it come from the time of Deuteronomy? Mm-hmm. You know, the actual Deuteronomic revision of the Hebrew scripture, in which case it probably is weird. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, there's a lot that one can't fully sort out. I mean, I don't know that we need to sort it out in the context of Bible work. <laughs> but we probably won't be able to do it in the next 20 minutes. But, but I think it's really helpful for a lot of reasons that you put, point this out. But one of the reasons is that we just, I need a constant reminder that all of these boundaries that seem so firm in various places in the Bible and other places in the Bible, it is so clear from the story that like, that's just what, what one school of thought thinks ought to be happening. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening because I don't see in this, in the tone of this text, at least at this point, I don't see the author necessarily judging Solomon. He's oh, I don't either. He's just reporting yeah. that this is what was happening. Yeah, absolutely. So, there is no judge. I fully 100% agree with that. There is no hint of judgment in this text. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that the things mm-hmm. that are said without judgment in this text are the very same things that are going to be judged so harshly mm-hmm. later on in his life. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, yep. I don't really know what to do with that at this moment, but I think it's worth sort of just... Having Knowing. that in the back of the head. Yes, that yeah. stuff is is all in the mix already. Okay, shall we see how God responds to this yes. request? Okay, I'm picking up in verse 10. 
The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, because you asked for this, you did not ask for long life, you did not ask for riches, you did not ask for the life of your enemies, but you asked for discernment in dispensing justice. I now do as you have spoken. I grant you a wise and discerning mind. There has never been anyone like you before, nor will anyone like you rise again. And I also grant you what you did not ask for, both riches and glory all your life, the like of which no king has ever had. And I will further grant you long life if you will walk in my ways and observe my laws and commandments, as did your father David. Then Solomon awoke. It was a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented offerings of well-being, and he made a banquet for all his courtiers. God really liked that request. God super liked that request. Yeah. Yeah. This is not really a question, but I'm but I'm curious what you think about this thought. This thought that I can't like sort of get out of my head. Maybe it's yeah. from like a parenting perspective. Like I I feel like, you know, early in in our texts, I know that sometimes you and I talk about God sort of figuring out how to be in covenant with people, with yeah. a person, with a people and figuring out how humans work. Yeah. <laughs> and what they need and what's going to work and what's not going to work. I just feel like this is such a fail. Like <laughs> God <laughs> has not seen. No, yeah. God has not figured out yet that if you heap like power and money upon one person, yeah. no. If again, if we assume from that, if we take Solomon at face value and assume that he was being sincere, that what he really wanted yeah. was, you know, a discerning mind, that all gets gets so much harder. You know, it, it's reminding yeah. me of, I hate to bring up New Testament when we're studying Hebrew Bible because that's, you know, I feel a lot of <laughs> tension there. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but just that the idea that's clear by that point in history that he, that people can't handle that much wealth. They can't. Yeah. yeah. They can't. Yeah. And the, the, Hebrew, the biblical text at this point should know that giving a king— <laughs> That yeah. kind, a human king, this kind of yeah. power, is a bad idea. Yeah. And especially when we're just one chapter off of the David story where that's exactly... It's exactly what happens. What happens. And the, the way that David is remembered in this text is being like such a... Uh, to keep my statutes and my commands as David your father did. I'm like, wait a sec. Right. But... Uh, yes! Did, didn't you, you listen to Bible Worm last, <laughs> last week, God? <laughs> This we is, the, this is the, this. the thousand parts compassion, I guess. Yeah. But so there is a naivety about that for sure. There is a naivety about it. And there's, it's almost like, yeah, like God has, has been so happy to forget yeah. that, that part of the story and just, you know, want to try again. But it's just, like, I, I'm like just watching the train wreck in slow motion. I'm like, don't get in the <laughs> don't <ditches!" you> know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, I, I really love that insight, Amy. And, you know, I mean, it might be related in some ways to what we were just talking about, that Solomon seems to be doing some things that are going to be problems for him later, but he seems to be doing them okay now. Mm-hmm. And one, I think, can certainly think about the addition of wealth and power as exacerbating those things. Like you, once you sort of lose focus in those things that used to be okay, you used to be able to handle then kind of get, amplified and uh, magnified in difficult ways. So I love that way of thinking. I don't, I had never thought of it in terms of like God is still figuring out how to deal with people 
But like even on the parenting metaphor, this is like when your kid wants something and you give them a reward once, like you've got to really think about what the reward is because they're just going to keep like expecting that reward now. Yeah. And so God's just being like, yeah, here's all this other great stuff too. There's nothing left to like aspire toward, I think. That's so interesting because I've heard, you know, maybe you've just thinking about the parenting piece. I won't stay on this for too long, but you know that uh, we have to be careful even in our praise of children that like instead sometimes it's better just to like set the expectation of, you know, generous and whatever kinds of behaviors and then express appreciation for the behavior, but don't go overboard with it yeah. because then it it attunes them to the praise instead of, oh yeah, you know, what you're trying to inculcate yeah. within them. And then, you know, all the more so, I guess, if you start heaping rewards upon it, then yeah. it, it's a distraction from. I like that, Amy. And it's interesting that here that, you know, it's Solomon hasn't done anything particularly wise at this point. Solomon has just requested to be wise. And so to give the reward after the request is kind of, you know, like there could be a way of doing this where when Solomon actually demonstrates that he has become a wise king, then maybe, you know, in the parenting metaphor. Yeah. The other thing that's always interesting to me about this text is that in order to gain this wisdom that he gets from God, Solomon has to be wise enough to know that he should ask for wisdom and not to ask for riches in a long life. So there is something in Solomon already that is discerning enough that he can ask for the correct blessing in order to receive even more of what he already had. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what to do with that insight exactly, but it seems important to me that, like, it's not like Solomon is a fool who yes. <laughs> makes a request and then gets wisdom. He has got enough yes. going on already. He's in the, like, conscious incompetence yes. stage. You yeah. know, you you know what you don't know. Yeah. And that's very, that is a very different stage from unconscious incompetence. Yes. There's all kinds of possibility once you're aware of it. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, this, this, this text itself does give me hope about him as a, as a king. He just has this new stumbling block of wealth to deal with. But again, in this text, it, is, it isn't a stumbling block. We just know, no, we know where the no, story is. No, you're right. Headed. In this yeah. text, it is a genuine, they're having a moment, you know? <laughs> like, God is like, fine, you know, yes, we have the right king on the throne. He understands what his priorities should be. He understands what his job should be. And because of that, I'm going to, you know, maybe if I can make him really comfortable and like have all sort of creaturely benefits in the world, it will help him to continue pursuing that end. Like yeah. I certainly, I understand that mindset. Yeah, you're right. The text is not cre- is not saying this is a problem. But it's really hard to read this text without knowing sort of where it's headed. Yeah. This is a, also a way that Proverbs gets critiqued in, within the biblical text and Ecclesiastes and elsewhere. Like the wisdom tradition gets critiqued for this. And especially in Job, if you correlate wisdom, wealth, prosperity, then people start mm-hmm. to pursue wisdom exactly for the wealth and prosperity. And so mm-hmm. I don't think that's what's happening here, but it sort of establishes that pattern. Mm-hmm. If you seek wisdom, I'll give you all this other stuff too. And that becomes a problem in the wisdom tradition itself, because now you're sort of primed to seek the wisdom by like wealth is a mean or wisdom is a means to wealth. 
Yeah. Rather yep. than an end in itself. Which is like super not wise. Yeah. <laughs> but it's where Solomon started, yeah. which is I want to yes. be wise so I can be a good ruler. Like that was yeah. that was beautiful r- right there. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's tricky. Is there anything else you want to pull out on this section in particular? I don't know if it's particularly important, but I think it's worth noting, especially knowing that the narrative lectionary is headed toward Matthew's gospel, that all of this was in a dream and it's told to us twice. Mm-hmm. And the we're gonna have, we're gonna see some dreamers in Matthew's gospel as well. And I, I mean, I don't know what's to say about that other than to note that dreaming in this text seems to be a way in which God legitimately shows up to and communicates with people. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think we're supposed to be like, oh, it was just a dream, right? Oh, for sure. Yep. Um, and so when we see dreamers later, like this is this is something that God God mm-hmm. does. We, we've also seen Joseph the dreamer back in Genesis. We have seen Joseph the dreamer, although it wasn't God talking to Joseph, but we have seen Jacob the dreamer. That is true too. Where yeah. God is very, like where they, they it's, it's kind of similar to this. They have a whole conversation, except Jacob's yeah. a little more chutzpah in what he asked for. But yeah. Yeah, and it is totally legitimate conversation between God and human. There's no question about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you make anything? I'm just literally just noticing this for the first time because I was trying to find my place in the text. Yes. At the end of this dream, he's so he's been at Gibeon. He's been offering sacrifices in Gibeon at what is going to turn out to be an unapproved altar. After he wakes up from the dream, he goes to Jerusalem. He stands before the ark where he's supposed to be, I think and offers up burnt offerings there. Do you read anything in that? Like now that this thing has happened, he's back where we expected him to be at the beginning. Or do you read that just as a as a detail that's not consequential? You know, that's such a good question. I, I don't know if this is correct. I didn't read it as a correction to an improper behavior, but as a draw to... Yeah the closest presence that he can have, not so much because they named Jerusalem, but because it says he stood before the Ark of the Covenant yeah. of the Lord. And that seems, yeah, that seems, that seems to me to indicate it a stronger pull or a stronger yeah. sense of connection than he had before. Although still, I don't, although still not a judgment on what he was doing before. I really like that way of reading it. Cause to me, Jerusalem is not really the urgent point here, but the Ark is. Yeah, and so I like that drawing. Not it's not a critique of what he was doing before, but an affirmation that he's been drawn closer to the presence of God in in the ark. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really nice way of reading that. So God appears to Solomon uncritically when Solomon is further away from where God is most present, and draws Solomon toward the ark where God is most present. So there is a movement in this text, mm-hmm. but it's a it's an invitational movement or mm-hmm, something like mm-hmm. that. Not a, you shouldn't be up there, but uh, here, you're doing a good thing. So let's be closer in relationship yeah. with each other. Yep, let's draw closer. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the narrative lectionary. And Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis and the attention to issues of social justice. Sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. 
If you're one of those responsible preachers who starts sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, let's let's read this famous story and see if we agree with the Seinfeld rendition of it. <laughs> okay, verse 16. Later, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The first woman said, Please, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. On the third day after I delivered, this woman also gave birth to a child. We were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, just the two of us in the house. During the night, this woman's child died because she lay on it. She arose in the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant was asleep and laid him in her bosom, and she laid her dead son in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, it was not the son I had born. The other woman spoke up. No, the live one is my son, and the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead boy is yours. Mine is the live one. And they went on arguing before the king. Mm. This is a sticky situation, Bobby. Oh, my goodness. It's so tragic and yeah. complicated. Like, there's so much going on in this, in this little vignette here. I'm so glad you started with the word tragic because I feel like well, some of this is probably just my my own baggage as a reader of this text in English. As a reader, I don't I don't know what my baggage is. I, I don't like the fact that this starts with two prostitutes came to the king. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily meaning to diminish the status of the women yeah. so much as explain why they are alone and living together in a house, both yeah. pregnant, but without. A man living in the house. Yeah, is is that how you understand why that details in there, or do you think they are? It's something else. I really appreciate you saying that, Amy. And given that one of the conversations we're having in our special series this fall is about Rahav, who is also a prostitute, uh, and thinking about the complexity of her character, I think it's interesting to not just immediately write them like, "Oh, they're said to be prostitutes." Yeah. I'm reading Robert Alter's translation and he calls them whore women <laughs> with oh like my. with a little hyphen in the middle. I'm like, that's just so disparaging. Like I mean, that's probably sort of truish to the Hebrew, but I mean that's pretty brutal. Yeah, but I, I, I like your interpretation that this is not meant to disparage them as human beings or like their role as like mothers who are capable of, mm. you know, being good mothers to their children. But I think exactly the issue is. There's no, there's no one to adjudicate the situation. And the text mm-hmm. makes that clear. They are prostitutes. So these, the fathers presumably are not, who not knows going to who acknowledge. The is. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, they're not going to acknowledge even if they're known. There's nobody else in the house. They say there's no stranger around. Like it's just the two of them in the house. I like that way of reading it just to say the point is, this is all that there, this is all you got. It's right. one There's no one else to call in here. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people do read it as prostitutes are particularly untrustworthy. And so like Mm. you can't really rely on their word about anything. But I don't, to me, that just seems like importation of some cultural baggage that doesn't necessarily need to be there. 
Right, because obviously, like, this is, it's just your, like, you know, whatever, she said, she said case. Like, right. one of them is telling the truth. One of them is not. Right. That, that, unless yeah. it's a, unless there's something totally different that happened. I guess that's possible. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I just think about that, verse 19, the woman's son died during the night she had laid upon him. And I mean, I don't know. Like, that was one of my experiences of having small children as I was constantly afraid mm-hmm. that something was going to happen to one of them, particularly mm-hmm. at night. And so just that, like, like this is a really frightening thing and a tragic thing for whomever it has happened to. And I think, I think especially like the Seinfeld is like about a bicycle, you know, like yeah. whose bike is it? And let's cut the bike in half or whatever. But there is a real like deep human emotion that is at the core of this text that I think is easy to skip over yes. if you just treat it as like a, a puzzle, you know? No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that for many, many years, I encountered this story as a puzzle. Right. And as I'm reading it now and trying to get to the question of like, what is what is wisdom? You know, yeah. like what part of wisdom is trying to get into a person's experience and understand and, and understand it, you know, I mean, we can, we'll, we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit more after we see Solomon's right. response. But I, I really deeply appreciate that you started this with like, this is a horrible, something horrible has happened. It has. And I can't imagine the experience of the woman who has lost her child. Right. And it sounds like she's lost her mind a little bit. Ass- assuming that that is, well... I was going to say, assuming that it even happened this way, which I guess we don't totally know. Amy, I'm so curious. So English translations, I was trying to pay attention to the JPS, and I, and I wasn't paying mm-hmm. attention very well, but English translations often try to clarify something in this text that is actually mm-hmm. not at all clear in the Hebrew, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which is which woman is actually telling the truth. Yeah. And... So you get the first one who tells a long story about what has happened while she was asleep. And then you get the second one who's like, nope, that's not what had happened. <laughs> and it's not actually clear. It's not at all clear to me which one is telling the truth. Right. And so when you say the the one the one woman has lost her mind a little bit or whatever, however you said that, mm-hmm. I'm just curious if it's. Yeah, maybe we can't sort it out anymore. But so you also are don't know which woman to read as the one as the legitimate mother, at least at this moment. I don't. I feel like my my I don't know. I don't know what to call it. On some gut level, I want. I feel like I should believe the person who has the longer story. Yeah. Although I also feel aware that, like it says, during the night, this woman's child died because she lay on it. How would right. you know how that baby died? Right. You know, I mean, or you just like, either you're just filling in yeah. your assumptions, which makes me question, right? you know, whatever, or, or you're just, or you're, or you're aware that you're making it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then while I was asleep, she switched the babies. Well, how? Right. Right. So if you were asleep, then how do you know? How yeah. do you know she switched? Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the, the person's filling in a lot of you know, what they imagine must have happened. Right. Assuming they're telling the truth or right. else they just woke up and their baby was dead. And then now they're saying, this is not my baby. The other baby's my baby. Right. 
I used to read this text as fairly straightforward, like the woman with the longer story is the Mm -hmm. true mother and the other woman is very cold and just says, no, mine's the living one. But this reading, for whatever reason, I am entertaining the possibility that the one with the long story is, you know, I think thou dost protest too much. Yeah. And the one with the short story is just saying, this is obviously not true. And Right. What else would she say other than that did not happen? That right. is patently false. Right. Like, yeah, there's nothing else to be said. And I, you know, I work in a community where there are people who have all kinds of stories about things that, that they think say happened that clearly did not happen. Like a mm-hmm. member of my community claims to have written Aerosmith's first album. <laughs> oh. Like Steven Tyler, that's a nice guy. And I mean like, and I mean, it's true in her mind. Like she's not, uh-huh. but so there is, com- there is complexity about who's telling stories and what's going on. And if a person yes. has experienced trauma, like what kind yes. of stories, I can't handle what really happened. And so here's a story that I yes. can acknowledge so the, the, to me, this is just really complicated. And then to, for the other woman to say, no, that's not true, could yeah. simply be the like, this is self-evidently, I know that you did not write Aerosmith's first album. And I don't right. know, like, I don't want to explain to you the ways in which I know, I know that. that. It's just obviously yeah. not true. Yeah. 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 No, I really, I appreciate you bringing in that, that experience because I think it also reminds us that the person, again, tying back to the first thing you said, about this being such a tragic story, it's not necessary. We don't have to read the person who's not telling the truth as manipulative and calculating right. and they don't li- and jealous. They don't like the fact that their baby died. They stole a baby. They know they stole a baby. Like, again, I cannot imagine the kind of tragedy, let alone in the postpartum haze oh, yes. that is really, really real. Mm. Who knows what this person believes to be true? Right. That doesn't mean it's true, but it does mean in terms of like how we're thinking about these characters, you know. Yeah. A little more empathy. Yeah. Solomon's got himself a problem. Solomon's got himself a problem. I do not know how one would solve this problem. I was trying to think like if I were the wise judge. <laughs> You've got a she said, she said, no other witnesses, no real way. You can't do a yeah, DNA No DNA test. testing. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. They so, both just gave birth, so they're gonna be they're gonna be like physiologically mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. in similar conditions. So it's not like you could say like you obviously didn't just have a baby. They both just had a baby, right? Yeah. All right. Should we read the rest of the story? I think so. The well-known ending. Okay. I'm gonna pick up in verse 23. The king said, "One says this is my son, the live one, and the dead one is yours." And the other says, no, the dead boy is yours. Mine is the live one. So the king gave the order, fetch me a sword. A sword was brought before the king, and the king said, cut the live child in two and give half to one and half to the other. But the woman whose son was the live one pleaded with the king, for she was overcome with compassion for her son. Please, my lord, she cried, give her the live child, only don't kill it. The other insisted, it shall be neither yours nor mine. Cut it in two. Then the king spoke up, give the live child to her, he said, and do not put it to death. She is its mother. When all Israel heard the decision that the king had rendered, they stood in awe of the king, for they saw that he possessed divine wisdom to execute justice. I realize Mm -hmm. reading this aloud that when it says give the live child to her, we have to fill in the detail of who, 
yes. <laughs> who, who the her is because the person who just spoke just said, yeah, cut it in two. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And it's, I mean, I, I was paying attention to your translation because some translations fill in the detail. So like this, the common English Bible in verse 27, the king answered, give the first woman the living newborn. Don't kill mm. him. She is his mother. But the Hebrew does not say that. It just mm-hmm. says, give the woman, give her. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. Like the one who just spoke is the one who said, just like for real, let's yeah. just split him. Mm-hmm. But to me, the the salient point is it's not clear even at the end of this story, which of the original two yes. women, like hopefully Solomon, if the outcome of the story is Solomon wants to give the baby to the woman who wanted to split the baby in half. <laughs> yeah, that seems clear problem. enough that's not, yeah. But maybe, um, well, you know, but I uh, but I do think it's interesting to retain the ambiguity about which of the original two women actually yes. we're talking about. Because the text itself in Hebrew is not at all clear yes. about whether it's the long story woman or the short story woman mm-hmm. who is the one that's ultimately determined to be the real, the real mother. I think that ambiguity is important. Mm-hmm. I understand why English translations want to specify. Mm-hmm. But when you say the first woman, you tend to think, oh, the first woman who spoke in the story, mm-hmm. which is the one with the longer explanation. That's right. not in the Hebrew. That's not, yeah, not at all. Okay, enough yeah. about that. Sorry. I would... Okay, so in the absence of evidence, mm-hmm. what what do you what is Solomon <laughs> going for? Like how how is how does he discern this? Yeah, I mean, I I go back and forth about how discerning Solomon is. Here's my most, here is my most positive reading of Solomon. Mm-hmm. He does not know which mother is the, which woman is the true mother. But what he's done, I mean, he's playing a little bit of a game of chicken, but he's, he's proposed this horrible thing in which the child mm-hmm. is going to die. Mm-hmm. And whichever woman protests, he's going to give that woman the baby. Like the one whoever says, no, 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 don't kill the baby. What are you talking about? He's going to give that woman the baby, whether or not that woman is in fact the mother. I think in the narrative, it turns out to have been the mother, but Solomon doesn't really ever know. And so what he's trying to do is to give, he's trying to give the baby to the woman who, who values the life, who is willing to give up the baby in order to preserve the life of the child. That's the person you want to have the baby, whether or not she's actually the mother. Mm-hmm. If yes. you don't want to, even if the child's mother is really the woman who wants to cut him in half and split him, like you don't want that person. Like she is not capable at this moment in her life of being right. a good mother to this child. Right. I think according to the narrative, Solomon gets it right because the narrative says the woman, the woman whose son was alive said, but I don't know that Solomon actually knows that he got it right. Do you know what I mean? I think he's just saying like, this is the kind of woman that I want to have this baby. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the way I read it. And so Solomon's mm-hmm. wisdom there, if you read it that way, is is, is about human nature mm-hmm. or something like that. Like I want, I'm not trying to settle the question of who actually is the mother. Yes. I'm trying to settle the question of who is best for this child to yes. be with as their mother. Yes. I love that, Bobby. I love it because I feel like the question they bring him is a totally like figure out what happened. Right. 
And the question that he answers maybe speaks to what happened, but more importantly is focused on what what should happen. Yes. Now, what's the next thing that should happen? Something yes. terrible has happened. Yes. What's the next thing that should happen? And, you know, probably, as you're saying, the text seems to indicate that it is, you know, those things are connected. But it's really interesting for me to think of wisdom or and, you know, justice or judgment as more forward-looking than oh, yeah. trying to trying to solve a puzzle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love that. It's, I mean, it gets complicated really quick when you start to think like justice yeah. is what is best for the future and not discernment of what happened in the past. But I mean, I agree. Like in some ways, like restorative justice seems to be the, the preferred outcome or something. I mean, it may be that I'm pushing this text too far and that it, it, it doesn't actually suggest that. It's just that Solomon feels so confident he can use this information about the future yeah. in order to figure yeah. out what happened in the past. Yeah. You know, but 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 there's this, there certainly is a relationship bet- between them, but it's, I, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's interesting and and complicated to to use that tool mm-hmm. as part of justice. There's a school of thought about this text that Solomon really was just going to split the baby in half. Because, <laughs> mm. I mean, this is Hebrew, like, legal, as if there's a code, as if there's a disputed property and you can't determine who the owner is, then you divide the property. And so, like, in that sense, the what Solomon says to do, like, it's a crazy thing to do to a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is also, in the very wooden way of reading the Torah provisions, it is what one would do with some other kind of property, right? Like, so if, if we're arguing about whose sandwich this is, we would just cut the sandwich in half or whatever. And so there's a way of reading Solomon as he has just very woodenly applied this legal tradition. And he's just sort of stumbled into this other, like, oh, wait, here's another possibility. I don't know. To me, that's a pretty <laughs> cynical. You don't, you'd seem unconvinced by that. No, it's just, it's just so the opposite of like, Grant yeah. me a discerning mind. I know I'll cut the baby in half. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If some work to do on that young lad. Then you're in sort of like even a broken clock is right twice a day kind of thing, which is very different uh, interpretation. Yeah. I mean, it's this like, it's like Amelia Bedelia, like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. <laughs> we're going to make this totally fair. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know what to do with that reading other than. Some people read this as like uh, official justice as a blunt instrument and you can't really, like you never quite know what it's going to do, which I think there's an interesting way of reading that. I think in the, within the framework of the text itself, it, I, I actually think this text is trying to say Solomon does understand something about human nature that leads him to a, a good conclusion, whether or not it's actually the... I mean, it could, here's what I could see. I could see maybe it's, it would be kind of extreme, but the idea that Solomon starts out with this wooden, you know, like, okay, this is how we divide property. But the point of wisdom is where he realizes he should change his path yeah. once he sees the emotional responses of yeah. the parties involved. Or I shouldn't oh, yeah. say emotional response. I don't know. But that would show 
a huge, like, growth trajectory. Like, that starts from, like, this man is a damn fool to, (laughs) you know, to he becomes the wisest king instead of saying, like, he— he already has this discernment and sort of knows what he's doing. Part, I guess, and that's an interesting part of wisdom too, is like yeah. part of wisdom is knowing when your plan, there's a better plan that has emerged. Like don't yeah. be too attached to your plan. I like that a lot, Amy. I like that a lot. The young man. You're a damn fool. <laughs> oh, wait, no. <laughs> you, you, you adjusted really nicely there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was quick. Good. Quick turnaround, Solomon, quick turnaround. There are also some interpreters who talk about like how, like Solomon doesn't really try very hard. You know, like you could have tried to see if there are other witnesses. You could have, some people say you could tell the difference in the stool of a three day old baby versus a newborn baby, you know, like that. I was wondering about that three day detail. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we don't do anything with it other than say, like, this woman's telling a long story. So yeah. maybe we like longer stories. Yeah. Solomon goes to the sort of most extreme solution. But it but it works. And it works in a way that draws out the sort of human nature and comes to a, a positive conclusion. And it turns out to be the right conclusion. And it works in a way that is also forward-looking. Yeah. That is not, I mean, it's a little weird to imagine that, um, yeah, I, I don't know. But, you know, from Solomon's perspective, if he doesn't know which person's going to respond in which way, it's not totally dependent on ju- justice for the sake of justice, but what is in the best interest of this baby. Yeah. I'm so curious what you think about you know, because we do know in verse 26 that it is the yes. woman whose son right. I have to keep alive. correcting myself because I, I, I want it to not be clear, but it is clear. It's clear. It is clear to the narrator. Yes. I don't think it's ever clear to Solomon. Like yes. maybe he got it right. Maybe he got it wrong. Like, I don't know how it could be clear to Solomon. How would you ever know? Right. But the narrator tells us that it is the right woman. Mm-hmm. But this woman, I'm so interested. Like that, to just think about that woman who like knows that the baby is hers and what she is moved to do is to say, I would rather my baby be alive with this woman who's trying to steal her from me than Mm. stay with me. Like she's kind of a remarkable person. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to think about what happened, what would have happened after that? Like I would rather this baby be alive and with the person who is trying to steal her from me, who has also just said, go ahead and cut the baby in half. Well, I guess she's just about to say that. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I have to imagine that's the kind of thing where it's like, we're going to bide our time and figure out something else to do. Yeah. It reminds me and some, some interpreters, I mean, it's a different story for sure, but we talked about the binding of Isaac last year where Mm -hmm. Abraham Mm -hmm. is, willing to give up his son and then has that son sort of gifted back to him. The details are obviously mm. quite different in this text because there's no divine command here and so on and so forth. But Abraham is often celebrated as sort of willing to let go of a beloved child and receive it back. This woman does a similar move. Mm. I'm willing to let go of this beloved child for the good of the child and then mm-hmm. receives it back. Mm-hmm. Abraham, of course, is very much celebrated for that move. And this woman is, I like, 
I almost forgot to talk about her just now. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up, Bobby, because this story is told only about Solomon. Yeah. But that's really like a re- that is a remarkable thing. Yeah. That is a remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. Unimaginable. Mm-hmm. A few days after birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about this section in particular, or shall we try to broaden our scope a little bit? The only other thing that I think is like just that last verse, mm-hmm. everybody held the king in awe for they saw that God's wisdom was within him to do justice. I don't really know what to say about that, except this one little incident kind of becomes the core of the like the aura, the the myth of Solomon, right? His, yeah. his great wisdom and discernment and and it spreads around and now everybody, that that word that is held in awe there is also the word for fear. Mm-hmm. And so I think there could be like Solomon's going to make himself some decisions. <laughs> like, you know, he's just going to go for it. So, I mean, I don't really know what, what to say there, but this, this story like ripples out beyond itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I love that you added in there also that the, the word for awe and fear are the same because he, I mean, the way Solomon does it is he's like, you think the ante's high now? The ante is now all the way up. <laughs> exactly. Like, we're going all we're the way going and we're going to see what's going to happen because, yeah. you know, I don't have anything at stake here. Yeah. So this and is a works. king you do not mess around with. And this is a king yeah. you do not mess around with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I wish we had more stories of, like, specific cases that Solomon adjudicated yeah. that are seen as these like paradigms of wisdom. And this is probably moving us towards towards ending comments, but like, I'm just really interested. I don't know. I, I'll talk about this some more in a minute, but in drawing I, out what's so- Why don't we, let's so, just, since you're sort of headed into this conversation, I think, why don't we just- Just flip it? Yeah, like, tell, what are you thinking about this text, Amy? I'm, I'm really curious about what, what is the wisdom that Solomon- shows here? Or what are the tools of wisdom yeah. that Solomon shows? You know, and, and to what extent is it sort of empathy and knowledge of human nature? Yeah. It seems like to a big extent, that's that's really what he's what he's using here. It's but it's not how I would have thought about applying wisdom right. based on I don't know what Proverbs. I don't even know what's in my head when I say biblical wisdom, but it's not like there's some rule and he's applying a rule. Right. It's much more, uh, you know, trying just trying to put yourself in the positions of these two people and, um, and try to guess how they're going to respond to different situations and then use their response as, as an indicator. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm thinking a lot about like, how do we, how do we learn these things? Mm-hmm. And you know, some of it is certainly through conversations like this and through through stories we inherit. Some of it is about people being honest about their experiences in the world, so we can, I don't know, it, so we can understand more fully what the range of human experiences might be. Like if if I didn't know any stories of postpartum uh, infant death or postpartum psychosis right. or you know whatever, like. These, this story would be a lot more difficult for me to inhabit in any kind of meaningful way. And I don't imagine Solomon knew those things in particular, but I don't know. I feel like the wisdom that he demonstrates is a much more 
uh, is much more closely tied to the the nature of the human yes. experience than than anything that you could sort of write down in a yeah legal code. Yeah. I really love that, Amy, because I mean, it's the the wooden application of rules is often the way justice seems to sort of work and bringing in that human side. I mean, where Solomon starts, either knowingly or not, is the wooden application of a rule. Like we don't know whose Mm -hmm. it is, let's split it in half. But you're exactly right. It's It's that discernment of what happens next. And I think having his mind on what is best for the future that's where the wisdom really is. And so thinking like a justice system or ourselves as making decisions, we need that kind of human awareness of the human psyche and the human mind and understanding people and trying to think about what's best for the future instead of simply saying like, well, here's the rule. So that's what we do. Right. 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 I love that. Yeah. What about you, Bobby? What are you thinking about as you read this text? Well, I think on the one hand, my my head goes someplace similar about, I, I'm especially drawn to Solomon. I read Solomon as never knowing whether he got it right or not. Mm. And so what the decision that he has made is about what's best for this child in the future. I'm really drawn to that idea, which is related to what you were saying. The other thing that I'm drawn to is from that first part of the text with a, when he's at Gibeon and that movement that we were talking about at the beginning of the text, Solomon is he's wise enough to know that he needs to ask to, for wisdom. So God is sort of working mm-hmm. with what is already there in Solomon and sort of orienting that in a positive way. And that, I've never quite known what to do with that Gibeon detail at the beginning, but I love where we ended up with that, where you ended up with that, which is that in the course of this story, what has happened is God has appeared to Solomon and worked with Solomon and what Solomon already has and granted Solomon wisdom. And that has drawn Solomon to the ark where he was ideally would have been in the first place. And so that, that sort of invitation from God into relationship by taking what is already there in in Solomon and I think by extension in us and figuring out how to amplify that in ways that draw us closer to God. Like, I really love that way of thinking about it and thinking about the fact that Solomon already has in him the possibility that God then amplifies. Mm -hmm. I think it is also true in this text, if you put in verses one to three, that Solomon also already has in him the things that end up being destructive Mm -hmm. when he turns away from God. And I love thinking about the fact that we are kind of like that too, that there are all kinds of potentials in us, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. And that when we orient those toward God, those get amplified in really positive ways, Mm -hmm. not in this text, but I think sort of implied in this text is that opposite that when, when we take those things in us and turn them the other way, they can end up sort of undoing us. But I like that image of God sort of working with what's there and, and, and bringing it to fruition. I think that's important and worth us. So we're not simply like empty vessels who are like, oh, please God, fill me up with yeah. something. But we're like people who have stuff. I love, I love that. I love that. I think that's so beautiful and so true. 
We've got all that. We've got the makings of all the stuff in us. <laughs> yeah. Well, with their own particularities, but yes, and and what we feed is what will grow. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I can't help. Also, I just want to raise up one more time the story of the woman in here yeah. that I completely glossed over before, yeah. but she's the real hero of the story. I had not thought enough about her until we were right there. <laughs> to yeah, like, no, me to neither. Know how I have never thought about that. her really. Mm-mm. But I would love. I'd love to see what people could do with like. Let's focus on her. Yeah. And see where that where that goes. Yeah, let's write her story. Mm-hmm. This was a lot of fun, Bobby. This was this was fun. I don't know if it was as much fun as a Seinfeld episode, but like <laughs> that's an unreasonable bar. We should do sleep deprived and highly caffeinated Bible rooms more often. Yeah. Maybe that should be <laughs> Let's <normal>. do it. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Oh, next time we move on to the book of Second Kings, chapter five, the story of the prophet Elisha healing Naaman. I was hoping it was going to be the story of him and that sending the bears to eat children because oh, they yeah. called him balls. Baldy. But- yeah. For reasons I will never understand, that is not part of the narrative lectionary. We'll make it part of <laughs> our know. own lectionary. But speaking as someone who has follically challenged myself, I will say that that story of calling bears on people speaks deeply to my soul. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, speaking as someone who just had to manage like 100 children during children's programming for the high holidays, I understand the calling in of the bears. Yeah. There ah. is a certain point. Yeah. There mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. All right, friend. Nice talking with you as always, and I'll see you next time. Okay. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Louise Buckles, Joyce Peachy Lind, Ann Bassett, and Andrea Allen. I hope you'll learn with us again next week when we will read 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Until then, keep on digging.